0: Addiction Support Podcast, episode number five. Hi, Oak Creek Wellness family. Welcome to Addiction Support Podcast, where I talk with inspiring people who share their knowledge and experience of addiction and what's working for them. This is addiction support for family and friends from people who've been there. I'm your host, Melissa Sue Tucker. Encouraging, inspirational, and life-changing content that makes a difference. Created specifically for you by Oak Creek Wellness.com. Hey guys, thank you so much for joining me again today. I'm really excited about my guest today. But before we get into that, I just want to let you know that if you're interested in finding out more information or what we're talking about, the links and the information for the show notes will be at addiction forward slash episode five. And I also want to thank a couple people for leaving reviews on iTunes. Jay Lee Fabulous says, helpful information for anyone, but it's great to see a podcast supporting people struggling with addiction, those in recovery, and their friends and family. This is a wonderful resource. Keep it up. Thank you for your encouraging words, Jay Lee Fabulous. And then I might get this wrong. Mar, M-A-U-R, Mar MCP says, I've been around recovery circles for some time and appreciate this new, new little gem. Great variety. I look forward to watching this podcast flourish. Good job. Keep it up. I might cry here. Thank you, both of you. Um, I was running a contest and I probably will do another one for this podcast to help get the word out because if you leave reviews on iTunes and you subscribe on iTunes, that's going to help more people find us. So I just want to take a minute and give them a shout out. Thank you guys. I'm going to keep going. Um, Okay, so without any further ado, my guest today is Loretta Bruning. She's a PhD, a professor, an author, and the founder of innermammalinstitute.org. I found Loretta, because I was reading a book actually about your happy brain or your happy chemicals, I'll get into that in a minute, and it was really cool because she breaks it down in a biological way, but keeps it very clear and very simple. So I'm going to read you a little bit from her website, intermammalinstitute.org. She says, um, happiness happiness comes from brain chemicals that all mammals have in common. I'm just going to say, stop, Um, if you guys haven't listened to episode number four, Tara Rose Ganim talks about happiness chemicals and how a lot of that actually begins in our gut with good gut health. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to episode four. But this basically is an extension from what we were talking about last week. Anyway, back to the website. Loretta says, when you know how serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, and endorphin affects animals, human impulses make sense. Our happy chemicals evolve to reward Survival behaviors, not to make us feel good all the time, but you can feel more good more often when you understand nature's operating system. The IMI, the Inner Mammal Institute, has all the resources you need to make peace with your inner mammal books, video trainings, slideshows, and blogs. It's not easy being mammal, but you can find your power over the quirky brain we've inherited. So definitely want to go check her out and, um, hope that you guys enjoy the podcast today and consider buying her book. It's amazing, especially if you have people in your life that aren't touchy feely or like to get into talking about their emotions. It's a great book. Like I'm an emotion talker. I like to talk it out. This book helped me understand people that don't. And this book is great for people that don't like to talk about stuff like that because it helps them understand themselves more from a very chemical, basic, easy space. Anyway, so without any further talking, I just want to jump right into it and thank Loretta for being here today. I hope that you all enjoy the show. Please subscribe and leave me a review. Thanks.
1: Great. Well, you know what's so amazing that got me started on this? Animals have the exact same brain chemicals that we have. And in the animal world, it's so easy to see what behavior is is stimulated by these behaviors, and that makes it so obvious. Oh, these are the behaviors necessary to survive, and we um, they make an animal feel good when it does something that would promote survival in the state of nature, and that's that's the operating system that gets a mammal to constantly do things that promote survival because. Natural Selection builds a brain that rewards that with a good feeling. But we humans, we're not spending our lives like sort of foraging for food the way animals do. And so we're trying to get more and more of these good feelings, but they, didn't, they weren't designed for that. They were designed to only reward you when you take action to meet a need, not to just sit on the couch and have a good feeling all the time. So um that's sort of the core of what I do and you could see how that gets confused by the habit of medicalizing this as if it's like you can just get some statistics about uh, like as if there could be some right level that you could just get as a chemical that's independent of your thoughts and actions.
0: So it's more about balancing out our actions than it is about chasing whatever that good feeling is, or trying to feel, let's say, happy all the time. Is that? Yeah,
1: yeah, and balancing those actions, of course, is really hard, there's no easy way, but our brain is designed to go toward things that make us feel good and that are good for us, and to avoid things that make us feel bad and are bad for us. Now, needless to say, what makes you feel good is not always what's good for you. And that's because what we think is going to make us feel good depends on what we think is good for us. Depends on the connections that we built in our brain in our early years. And it's so easy to see this again with animals, and you know you could see it with other people. Um, anything that turned on your happy chemicals when you were young connected neurons that tell your chemicals when to turn on today. And no one can have a perfect past, and even if your past was perfect, the bottom line is that in the state of nature, cookies feel good, because there were no cookies in the state (laughs) of nature. So we are constantly challenged to sort of like, how can we feel good without overdoing things that are sort of too available today?
0: What, if any, what advice do you have for parents of young children to help them create habits that feel good that are going to be effective for them versus something that's going to be a destructive habit? Is there anything really we can do, or is it just up to nature and they're going to choose whatever habits um, make sense I, to them?
1: Um, it's so it's so hard. I, I understand. Like it, This is such a hard thing to do because I was like... so much of my life, you know, worrying about whether I did the right things as a parent. So, I'm really reluctant to say anything that might make a person worry more. That makes sense. But, um, (laughs) but I feel like, um, like in everything, there's a middle road. So, on the one hand, we don't want our kids to learn about fire by putting their hands in a fire. But, on the other hand, it Our brain does learn, like, once you touch fire, once, you never have to touch it again. You've learned it. And if you have a a parent in an environment that screams that you, don't touch fire, don't touch fire, then maybe you you build, like, a fear of fire, but you're also sort of angry and distrustful and, like, you want to touch fire. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) it's so hard to have that middle path where the child has enough real interaction with the ups and downs of, of reality, of survival, so that they feel it, so that they believe in their own perceptions and they have confidence in their own navigation. But yet, we don't want them to learn it with challenges that are so big that they're, they're traumatized. Mm. So it's sort of a matter of um, sort of structuring but again if if you overstructure that you don't leave anything for the child's own impulses so again it's like sort of a, a middle line of like how much challenge is the child open to and too much challenge could be threatening but too little challenge is not good either so simple way that i like to say it is um self regulation is learned okay mm-hmm. so if if we think of like a a reptile going to the simplest level, and if you see a lizard in the sun, and you may think, oh, that lizard looks so peaceful in the sun, but in fact, lizards are stressed all the time, because when a lizard is out in the sun, it can get eaten by predators every second. So, it's really trying to warm up its body temperature so it can go back into hiding. And then when it's hiding, it starts feeling the stress of being cold, but it doesn't want to go out in the sun and risk being eaten alive. So it's constantly regulating its metabolism, like when should I risk being out in the sun? When should I risk hiding under a rock? And that's what its brain evolved to do, It's like make that constant decision between this danger and that danger. Mm. So... We mammals then evolved a more complicated system on top of that, but it's like how can I feel good while avoid all these threats that are just part of life? And that's when we talk about like regulating chemicals and balancing chemicals. It's not like that. There's a perfect, simple answer, but to have confidence, like. My brain is designed to handle this. I can handle this. I handled it before, and I'm going to be able to handle it again. Hmm.
0: So I have so many questions. There are so many different directions that I kind of <laughs> want to take this in. But just focusing in on the addiction support, and really this is for friends and family that love addicts. And, you know, I think first and foremost, we need to learn how to take care of ourselves And then second, you know, how do we love and support and, and, you know, take care of those that we love that might not be in the healthiest place right now? What advice would you have, I guess, starting with the friends and family? What advice do you have for us as it relates to our neurochemicals? What are some tips or tricks? Okay. Two
1: things. One is the idea that um, people always learn from our actions more than our words. Mm -hmm. So we really want to model the behaviors that we would like to see in others rather than lots of speechifying. And um, in terms of what behaviors, I like to use a really simple concept of internalizing versus externalizing. So externalizing is always blaming one's frustrations on the external world, like, you made me feel that way, the world makes me feel that way, and even to take it a step further, the world is happy that I'm suffering. Mm. So all of these kind of externalizing thought patterns are not really helpful in a person building that confidence in their own self-regulation, and... um It's nice to feel, um, like, confidence in our own ability to say, I can take responsibility for my feelings, I can manage my feelings, and then do it, not tell another person to do it, not talk about doing it, but actually do it. Now, it's not always comfortable to do because we often feel bad about ourselves when we take responsibility for something. But that's another thing. How can I take responsibility without then hating myself? And when I can do that, then everyone around me learns, oh, so that's how it's done. Hmm. Does that make sense? Or I could give examples.
0: Yeah. Is, is this um, what you're talking about in your book around how we can create new pathways for cortisol or how to feel less of it?
1: Um, How to create new neural pathways for the happy chemicals in ways that are sustainable. So what's in the book is um, how how neural pathways got created in your past, how you can create new ones, and how to choose new ones that are sustainable rather than something that's going to hurt you in the long run.
2: Okay.
1: But uh, to give a really simple example, I have this um, free five-day happy chemical jumpstart on my website. So if a person goes to my website, innermammalinstitute.org, and um, they get five emails, one a day, that uh, sort of a simple introduction to this. And in the message uh, the second day on dopamine, It explains um, dopamine is what makes you feel good when you take a step towards something that meets your needs. And that's nice, but the good feeling only lasts for 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And you can see how in the state of nature, that motivated us to keep taking steps that met our needs. But in the modern world, you know, I could have a cookie and 20 minutes later, you know, the good feeling is over and now I could want to have another cookie. So... Um, I could constantly make myself feel better in ways that are bad in the long run so how can I understand what really triggers it at a deeper level so I can find healthy ways to trigger it and just saying oh I'm never going to have another cookie I'm such a bad person for wanting to eat cookies all the time that's not it doesn't feel good but to blame the cookie manufacturers, that makes you powerless. Mm. So something in the middle is sort of what I'm explaining, like, oh, I, I, I did it this weekend. I was, like, I, I was on my way to a meeting that was, eh, you know, a weekend-long meeting is a little taxing. And I stopped at a bakery, a really good bakery, and got a really good cookie. And I ate one-third of the cookie a day. So over the weekend I had one cookie. You <laughs> know? So, so I, I was able to to feel good and to to feel like um to feel good about the short run and to feel good about the long run and to not dump on myself for
0: wanting a cookie. And I just wanna say everybody I will put these in the show notes too where people can go to sign up for your five Um, emails but everybody listening should absolutely go sign up for that and get those because Loretta provides there's a lot of information on there and it's really I feel so far it's really good information it's above and beyond anything that a lot of people are giving away for free right now so definitely go sign up for that email list um and then you at the back of the book, I was looking at the postcards from the brain that you have, you said, if they be- if you believe they control your happiness, you don't learn how to create it in your own brain. So it sounds like something that we actually need to do to consciously become aware of when we are blaming others or blaming outside things or companies or whatever for our happiness or lack thereof and actually start to take some responsibility around that.
1: Yeah, and it's really hard to do it <laughs> because, <laughs> not just because it's naturally a hard thing to do, but, like, everybody around you, they think that the way to be nice is to say, oh, it's not your fault, life is so hard, they should have made it easier for you. And, you know, I I have this strong image of when I figured this out how I was doing the wrong thing with my kid. <laughs> so I'll give you mm-hmm. a simple example. So when I was young, um, just to get right to the point, like screaming at kids was the done thing <laughs> in many circles, mm-hmm. and it was not, not even got that much attention. It was just sort of a done thing. So, let's say if I spilled a glass of milk, my mother might scream for quite a while. And, you know, I was little, and she was big, and she could have quite a tantrum, and I was terrified. Mm -hmm. So, needless to say, I never wanted to do that with my kid. But I went to the other extreme. If my kid spilled a glass of milk, I would say... I'm sorry for putting that milk in the wrong spot um. near your hand, near the edge of the You know, it's like always teaching my kid that the world should have been perfected so that they would never have to have a problem. Mm-hmm. That's not good. <laughs> you know what I mean? So then I realize, oh, so the thing to do is when my kid spills milk to say, Oh, We need a sponge. Let's walk together to get the sponge. Here's two sponges. We'll do it together. You see? And then that builds the confidence of, oh, there's a problem. I can fix it. It's not a crisis. Yeah. When I figured out uh, the healthy way to teach my child that when you make a mistake, that you can fix it and you can feel Calm and confident, like well, when something goes wrong, I can fix it, and I figured that out in a, a time that was like, let's say, kind of late for the formative period of their brain, you know. And then I always felt bad about that, but then I tell myself, yes, but I modeled that in my life, so hopefully they got to learn it from, mm-hmm. you know, like when I spilled my own milk. I had no problem dealing with it, but because I so didn't want my kids to suffer, so I never wanted them to have to deal with spilt milk. So, you know, trying too hard to make the world perfect for your kid doesn't give them the confidence in their own ability to deal with the imperfections
0: of life. Hmm. That's, that's a... Valuable point. And I think so many of us as parents, we do want to make everything perfect and we do feel bad when it's not. But we got to allow them that space to grow and learn. Otherwise, they're not going to feel confident and they're not going to want to yeah. do it on their own. We're going to end up yeah. taking care of them forever, which is not what we want either.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting to me. You know, I was so happy when I realized that screaming at your kids was no longer the done thing. And, in- I just thought, oh, we'd have a whole generation of happy people, but alas, <laughs> <laughs> it didn't work out that way because um, kids didn't necessarily learn that the brain does have ups and downs, and indeed, I think the brain um, it gravitates toward the downs because, mm-hmm. in the state of nature, being hyper aware of threats is what promotes survival. You know, um, if if you have an animal in nature who's only focused on enjoying the grass and not noticing when a predator comes and the animal is not going to survive, and we are descended from the survivors who gave due attention to threats. So we have to work very hard to not um, let that sense of threat overcome us and find healthy ways to manage that natural sense of threat. So how do we do that? So how do we do that? Well, the simplest answer I would say is to have a variety of tools because any one tool you use, it's not going to work forever. So just to give you the simplest example, if you have one song, when you listen to it, it makes you feel good. But if you listen to that song every minute of every day, it's not going to make you feel good anymore. Mm. But if you have like a variety of things that are healthy, Um, but they make you feel good and you sort of have them ready and you give yourself a sort of a realistic rotation. So um, work, you know, work makes you feel good in reasonable quantities because it makes you feel like you're stepping toward meeting your needs, but then rest and um, social support also feel good. But um, when you rest, your brain naturally allows threat in because you're not distracted by work. So that's what makes less <laughs> challenging. And that's why we all have to work on finding healthy ways to unwind um, that work enough to distract you from threat, but not so distracting that you put yourself in, in another unhealthy state. Mm-hmm. And then social support. Again, feels good, but there's no easy way to do it because once you look for social support, you you cannot have that um, limitless bonding that a child has, Mm. and, and you cannot have that limitless running with the herd feeling that an animal has. You have the reality that you're still an adult individual, in addition to. that that deep inner longing for social support and to sort of learn to feel some pleasure in the social support you have despite the fact that it's never going to be all that you would dream it would be.
0: Hmm. I was listening to another podcast that you had given and you were talking about how oxytocin creates that feeling of belonging, but there's that other side of it too where we get too much of that, we feel restricted. So it sounds like every chemical or every good feeling there's that other side too that we need to figure out how to balance it out and incorporate a full and happy life or i guess a fuller life so that way we can balance it yes
1: exactly every one of these chemicals it has its limits and i'll give you the simplest example it's like uh, so obvious so there's this famous restaurant called the french laundry Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and it has this system it's very very expensive and I haven't been there, I <laughs> just read about it. Lots of they give you a dish with only three or four bites worth of food. Then they give you another dish with three or four bites. And the whole meal is like lots of little dishes with three or four bites because our brain loves novelty. Hmm. And they say that after three or four bites of food, you're not even really noticing. So when you have something good, you notice it when you first get it. But after that, you don't notice it, which is why maybe there's a tendency like, well, let me make it sweeter or saltier or spicier because when I have it the way I already have it, I don't notice it. So I use this hypothetical example. Let's say I go to this famous restaurant with all the little bites and I say, oh, my God, this is the best dish I ever had. I don't want all those little bites. I just want one whole dish of that. And I convince the cook to make me a whole dish of that. And they bring it, and I'm so excited. And then I start eating it, and, like, after five or six bites, I'm disappointed. I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, this isn't so good. I think the cook messed up. (laughs) So we don't realize that, like, the thrill wears off, but we blame the external world for not thrilling us. Hmm. And it's better to know how your brain works and to give yourself that degree of variety that you need to, to feel good about your life.
0: What I love about this and how we're talking about the neurochemicals is sometimes, you know, people in our positions where we love somebody that's going through addiction or has addiction, sometimes we feel like we're setting ourselves apart or they have a disease that we don't have. But in reality, when it's taken down to the very simplest forms, it sounds like we're all set up to operate the same way it's just maybe somebody with addiction has created different habits around how they're how they're dealing with it or how they try to feel something or try not to feel something is that
1: absolutely you know what you brought up two great points so let me try not to um, forget them so one of them uh, this the feeling of it's not really acceptable for me to be happier than someone else hmm. Oh, it's such a a burden. It's so challenging, and I have a whole chapter on it because it's such a big issue. And it may be that that an addict has actually learned that it's not okay for them to be happier than someone they're around, and maybe they're producing that result because they don't want to come out ahead.
2: Hmm. So
1: we can really help others by modeling, you know what, I can be good to you, but I'm going to put value on my own health first. Um, and if someone else is destroying themselves, you're not contributing by by joining in that unhealthy pattern. Yeah. So that's one thing. The other thing, you know, when you refer to um, one person may have learned a healthier coping strategy, and another person may have learned an unhealthier coping strategy. So there's a simple way of understanding this. The brain learns from whatever works, Mm. and that means whatever worked when you were young. And when I say young, I mean before, seven, before eight years old and during puberty because at that time period, your brain produces a lot of what's called myelin. Myelin is something that's sort of like paving that turns a road into a highway. So the highways in your brain were created when you were under eight and in puberty because that's when your brain produced a lot of myelin and it's easy to understand why, like in the animal world that this promotes survival... Um, so in a human case, so what worked when I was under eight? Well, obviously, kids don't have real knowledge of survival,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but kids need social support to survive, and kids have a constant fear of losing social support. So they learn whatever gets me social support promotes survival. So one kid might get social support in one way, and one kid might get it another way. But whenever you're having a bad moment and you do something that makes the bad feeling go away, your brain says, oh, that's it. That's what you need to do. So let me give you a simple example. Let's say a lion is chasing me and I find a tree and I run up a tree. Then it's like, ah, oh, now I'm safe. So now the rest of my life, when I feel threatened, I'm going to look for trees. So whatever that person did during their early years that turned a bad feeling into a good feeling, they say, Oh, that's, that's it. That's what I need to do. Mm-hmm. Now, whatever that thing is, it may not be good for you in the long run, but that connection in your brain is there, but that's fine. It's just that you have to build a new connection, but it's harder to build a new connection when you're, over eight and not in puberty, and what it takes to build a new connection is choose a new behavior and repeat it every day without fail for 45 days and accept that it's not going to feel good in those 45 days, but commit to doing it anyway by making your energy available. So for those 45 days, you're not gonna spend your energy on other things until you've done this one thing. And, and it's harder than you think, so you'll just make sure that your energy is available.
0: What types of things do you recommend? Is this like working out or yoga or reading? Um, uh, that's a possibility,
1: but Um, If a person has a real big challenge that they want to get over, I recommend doing something that you already enjoy. Mm. So if you enjoy yoga, go for it. But if yoga is another should for you, then, you know, maybe you can put that in your toolkit later on. But for step one, I would start with something, you know, I would call it like a guilty pleasure, not an unhealthy guilty pleasure, but I'll just give you a simple example. Like, normally, I would never, like, just sit and watch a movie in the middle of the day.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But if I say, you know what, I have to do this really, really hard thing. And if I get myself to work on it from 9 till 12, I'm going to watch a movie from 12 to 1, and tomorrow I'm going to watch the second half of that movie from 1 to 2. Like, I could do that, right? So just, you know, give myself... um but only only if I do that really hard thing, not, you know, don't give myself the reward. So That's just one
0: example. I like that. So we're creating new ways to reward ourselves and feel safe and we can replace some of the unhealthy behavior with the new healthy behavior.
1: Yeah. And then, and also trust in your own skill, like that when a bad feeling comes along that you have the confidence that you'll be able to do something about it.
0: So is that just taking a breath and reminding ourselves that we'll have the confidence or how do you recommend people doing that when they're just starting out? Maybe they haven't even thought about this before.
1: Um, well, the first thing is to become aware, you know, in, in sort of um, recovery, I, I hate to use like recovery language, <laughs> um, but Um, If one has been around recovery language, there's the expression of being aware of your triggers. Mm. Um, And so that a person recognizes the trigger um, before they get too far into it. Um, The problem is the triggers are always something external, or, Mm. or that's what a person's often focused on, without recognizing the internal part of it. So I'll give you a simple example. Most people don't want to admit that they have a fear of being socially excluded. Mm. But that is like the most primal fear for a mammal. And just like, you know, you were saying before, like when you feel accepted by a group, your mammal brain says, oh, now I'm safe. Mm -hmm. Even if the group is not necessarily really that safe for you. So then when you fear losing the group, You lose that oxytocin feeling, and then you think, oh, my God, this is something awful, even if it's really not that awful, because that's just your inner mammal feeling that way. So um, most people would like to, once you start having that fear of, you know, if I'm isolated, a wolf is going to eat me, that's what your inner mammal is creating. And Mm -hmm. most people are not going to be aware of that. They're going to say, they were rude to me, you know, and I can't feel good until they stop being rude to me. So I'm going to be angry until they stop being rude to me. And then when I'm angry, I feel bad. So then I look for whatever that thing is. So you can do yourself more good by saying, wait a minute, I'm creating that bad feeling. I have the power to not be angry. To not feel like my survival depends on what that person did to me or what I think, oh, what did she mean by that? She smiled at me, but I think it was a critical smile <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love that. I love this because i 've done a lot of work, maybe in the personal growth space or in more of the you know the woo woo space or the spiritual space, but you 're taking science and you 're breaking it down. this is what 's going on, and it lines up, I think really well, and you're saying the same things, you're just backing it up with science, which is fascinating to me.
1: Yes, exactly. I, I Thank you. I mean, I agree, too, but um, most of the science world today is, is not saying what I'm saying. Um, they are, in fact, trying to generate evidence to support the what we could call the woo-woo thing. You already know what that is. So, um, I'll give you a simple explanation of why. So, A few hundred years ago, there was a philosopher, Rousseau, who said that nature is all good and everything bad is caused by our society. Hmm. And this is now the core belief of social science. And everyone that you are getting information from has been trained in this belief, and you basically flunk out of school if you don't buy it. So no one would dare question it, uh, but nature is not all good. So once you realize, like the idea, the old idea was nature is all good and therefore feeling good is effortless, except that something has gone wrong. And so everyone goes around with this feeling of something has gone wrong, but it's much healthier to say, no, in the state of nature, survival is really hard. And it takes this constant effort to feel good when your brain is so aware of survival threats. So the way I say it is, um, your survival is threatened as long as you're alive. Your your human brain is aware of death in a way that your mammal brain is not. So your human brain can scare your mammal brain to death because animals like they don't consciously understand death. When they smell a lion, that triggers the chemical that anticipates pain which is cortisol but they don't have like a conceptual awareness so we humans we can trigger cortisol whenever we think about anything that's indirectly related to pain in any way
0: which could be like a constant stream of cortisol and that's not healthy for our bodies yeah
1: yeah and and our minds, and then yeah. that causes us to trigger more and more and more, and so this belief like, oh, there's got to be this promised land with no cortisol and something has gone wrong, and the world needs to be fixed, it all doesn't doesn't make you feel better, um, mm-hmm. but uh, understanding your inner mammal makes you feel better.
0: I love that. You were talking um, in the video that you shared with me about how we can help ourselves feel better by setting goals, like little goals and bigger goals, and accomplishing those throughout the days. Um, do you want to share a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. Um, some people have like very big long-term goals. I'll just use the simplistic, I want to be a rock star. Mm. And... Um, the good side of that is every time you kick out your guitar, you know, you get a good feeling because it triggers that whole long run thing of I'm going to be a rock star. But we all know that we, we don't have absolute power over these long run goals. And in fact, even when a person reaches them, it doesn't make them happy forever. And we all know that rock stars are not happy (laughs) forever. So, so, But then there's the other extreme. There's the short-run goals of, you know, I'll have a cookie, and when it wears off, I'll have another cookie. So that doesn't work either. Um, So we need a a, a menu of, like, short and long-run and medium-run goals. And sometimes the goals are somewhat illusory. And I use a funny example. Um, I had this student who was interested in, Long-term cycling, uh, like long-distance cycling, and he would try to climb up the uh, uh, bike up this mountain, and he would divide it into quarters and like celebrate um, when he reached each quarter of the mountain. And the irony is that it's it's, it's meaningless because still the same distance, <laughs> but it's um, giving yourself a sense of accomplishment.
2: Mm. Um,
1: but another way of looking at it is, excuse me, um, another way of looking at it is taking a tough job and breaking it down to small chunks. And um, my favorite example is if I open a closet door and I look at the mess in my closet and I'm like, oh my God, like, I feel so awful every time I look in my closet, but I don't know where to start and I don't know what to do. But one thing that everybody can do, you know, you could set a timer and say, I'm going to spend 10 minutes on this closet every day. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to have my cookie until I spend 10 minutes on the closet. And, and if you do that every day, you know, over the course of time, the closet will be cleaned. And if you make the habit of doing that for the rest of your life, then you'll sort of keep up with things. Hmm. And and also feel good about your ability to keep up with
0: things. That makes a lot of sense. I have a friend that talks a lot about the all or nothing attitude versus taking everything in small chunks, and it sounds like a very you know the same thing just said in a different way. And it makes sense because then, so what chemicals does our brain produce when we're able to do that? Is that where the dopamine kicks in?
1: Yes, um, dopamine is the good feeling that you get when you take a step toward a reward, and it's not meant to just flow all the time for no reason, so that's what we might think, oh, you know, like, doctor would be like, oh, you know, you have a problem with your chemicals as if you're just supposed to sit on the couch, and they're supposed to flow for no reason, but that's not how it works, so um, if we take a couple of animal examples, so think about a lion is looking for a meal. And it sees animals, and if it ran after every animal it saw, it would starve to death because it it misses most of the time, and it would run out of energy before it actually found something it could catch. And um, instead, it looks very carefully for some goal, for some prey that it can catch. And when it sees something, its dopamine turns on, and it runs. So, dopamine is both that feeling of "I can get it, I can get something that can meet my needs, and it's a release of energy that feels good, and that's what prepares your body to take steps that meet your needs yeah. but the um the lion is constantly reevaluating so as it gets closer and closer to the gazelle, maybe at some point the lion says oh i'm I'm not." I'm not getting it. It's getting away from me. There's no sense investing any more effort in this chase. I'm going to look around for a new target. So if a lion constantly gave up, it would starve to death. But if it constantly ran after animals that were getting away, it would starve to death. So we're only designed to make careful decisions on... When should I invest my effort in this particular goal? Which steps will work? And then you get the good feeling when you say, there's a goal I can make and start stepping.
0: Hmm. And how do the endorphins play, come into play?
1: Yeah, endorphins really complicated. So um, mm-hmm. many people probably know endorphin is chemically equivalent to morphine, which means also heroin, codeine, oxy- oxycodone, and um, runner's high. So that's mm. how many people have heard of it. But we are not designed to be uh, to, ha- to be releasing uh, endorphin all the time. It is only designed for emergencies. So if you watch a nature video and you see a lion attacking a zebra and the zebra's flesh is torn open but the zebra is still able to run to save itself, then that zebra's body has released endorphin and for 20 minutes it will mask pain and that allows the zebra to escape and live But after 20 minutes, the zebra will feel pain because pain tells you to nurse your injuries. So we only release endorphin when we're in real physical pain. So if you imagine a caveman who's hunting and broke his leg, then for 20 minutes, endorphin would mask pain so that the caveman could go toward help. But after 20 minutes, pain tells the caveman not to to walk on a broken leg. Hmm. So, um, it feels great, it masks pain, but it's not meant for all the time. It's it's just, we can just be glad we have it for emergencies.
0: That's fascinating. It's opening up all these other questions that I have around, you know, people that are using heroin and some of the other opiate-based, but that's probably, (laughs) I don't know if you you want to talk about
2: that.
1: I forgot to explain um, about runner's high. Yeah. So um, when people talk about runner's high, a lot of people sort of equate that with exercise. So it's useful to know that runners do not get it on every run. They only get it when they run to the point of pain. Mm -hmm. And if a person must drive themselves to the point of pain every day, they're going to injure themselves in the long run. So... So being addicted to endorphin, even through natural ways like in, um, running, it's just not sustainable in the long run. Exercise is good. Uh, you know, exercise gives you, you know, a little bit of one good feeling, a little bit of another good feeling, but it's not like this euphoric high on a daily basis, It's not what our body is designed for and we don't need it. The reason a person needs it is because they've learned to rely on that as a distractor from a constant sense of threat. And it's better to work directly by acknowledging one's sense of threat and learning to understand it so that one feels power over it and says, oh, I'm not really threatened. That's just my inner mammal feeling threatened.
0: Hmm. It's fascinating. Um, I want to talk a little bit about oxytocin too, and this is one I feel like I'm familiar with because I told you I have a little guy; he's almost two. I had a home water birth, and it—I mm-hmm. planned for that for months in advance and stuff. And after I had him, I felt like that was the most spiritual, most high. Like, I couldn't even explain it to people. It was the most amazing feeling. And for about maybe three to six months after I had him, I kind of felt sad. Like, I didn't want to get pregnant again and I didn't want to have another child, but I wanted to have that birth experience again. And I'm wondering, if, <laughs> it was probably all of them combined, but it was phenomenal. Yes. yes. Um, yes. So, um, this is very good to
1: explain this. Okay. So, oxytocin is what causes the feeling of attachment in mammals. Mm. And it's important to know that before there were mammals, reptiles had no attachment. So reptiles lead a solitary life. They never interact with other reptiles except for a few seconds during sex. And during those seconds, reptiles release oxytocin. It's actually a chemical with a very slight difference. And that allows them to tolerate the presence of another reptile. Otherwise, they're constantly like, get away from me. So a reptile gives birth to thousands of babies, and they all leave the instant they're born. And if they don't, a parent eats them. So reptiles are born with all the knowledge they need to survive. They don't learn from experience. They don't learn from their parents. So mammals cannot produce thousands of babies because it's so hard to gestate a warm-blooded baby. And in fact, the bigger the baby's brain, the longer the gestation. And actually, elephants have (laughs) 22-month gestation. Yeah. So if we mammals lose one of our babies, it takes us a real long time to make another. So if we lose too many, our genes are not going to survive. So. Uh, natural selection produced a brain that causes attachment. So I can keep my baby alive by watching it every second. And my baby can stay alive by clinging to me every second. And that protected... Um, mammals from losing their babies to predators. Now, reptile, I forgot to say, reptile makes thousands of babies and it loses most of them. Most of them get eaten by predators, but only a few need to survive to keep the the reptile's genes alive. So, mammals need attachment to keep their genes alive and oxytocin causes attachment, but it's not an intellectualized thing. Oxytocin causes labor pains, causes um, a mother's milk letdown reflex. You probably, maybe Mm -hmm. people have heard about this. Um, And in animals, they lick their babies or they cuddle their babies. And in humans, we cuddle our babies. So touch stimulates more oxytocin. But over time, if a mammal spent its whole life attached to mom, it would never reproduce. So. Part of keeping your genes alive is that your young ones grow up and transfer their attachment to their peers in ways that will lead to surviving copies of your genes, grandchildren that survive and create their own children. So that's the the survival pattern for mammals and oxytocin facilitates each step. So the way it works is it's trust. Oxytocin causes a good feeling of trust. So it's nice to think that we should just sit on the couch and have it flowing all the time. But in fact, it doesn't help you survive to trust everyone. So your brain evolved to make very careful decisions about when to trust and when not to trust. And the way you know that is the oxytocin circuits you've built from your particular past experience, especially your experience in your myelin years that I said before eight and during puberty, hmm. which is pretty darn hard. And that's why I say that everyone, every adult sees life through the lens of a high school cafeteria because <laughs> that's that's when we, you know, the trust bonds of puberty or or pain and challenges of lack of trust bonds during puberty is what builds our oxytocin circuits.
0: So explain that a little bit more about how every adult sees it through the the high school cafeteria. Is that like, are you talking about the self-talk that we have and things that go inside of our head versus how we might present ourselves or is that something different?
1: Um, Whatever made you feel good during puberty um, turn on your happy chemicals and your brain said, wow, this works, This is do more of this. Whatever made you feel bad during puberty connected neurons and your brain says, wow, you better avoid that or you're going to die. So it's no self-conscious self-talk is necessary. It's just something good happened and your brain says, oh, so that's what it takes and something bad happened, and you want to avoid that. Now, that leaves us in a dilemma, because we want to take steps to to do things that will make us feel good, but we also want to avoid steps of anything that caused us pain in the past, and there's no easy way to do that, because obviously you can't always predict and control other people. So so there we are, trying to avoid everything that hurt us, and still try to get ourselves to take steps that will lead to, to feeling trust. Hmm. It's not easy. There's no easy way. There's no simple answer. So that's why everyone says, oh, we should have a society that makes us feel good all the time. It's just not realistic. And anyone who believes that life is easy in other societies hasn't really studied them with an
0: open mind. Yeah. I'm looking at my uh, high school career, and gosh, I was so miserable, and I hated high school. So I'm gonna have to look at some of that stuff. And s- I think, like you, yeah, I, like I loved whole- to read. I loved watching TV. What other things did I love to do? You know, that's kind of yeah. Well, but where is
1: this illusion that like other people had it going on in high school? Oh it's my gosh, it's just an illusion. It's just the movies and stupid TV shows. Like the idea that that. Some young child is supposed to have, like, the skills and emotional intelligence of, like, a, you know, a sales, a sales, a sales executive or something. It's not realistic.
0: That's a good um, point.
1: Yeah, and um, the, it's better to know how things were in the past, just to know mm-hmm. what a challenge it is. So in the past, kids were forced, to spend their lives in the, circ- in the trust circle, in the herd that they grew up with. Once in a while, you know, they would sell you into a new herd. You know, you would get, like, engaged, um, you know, um, to a spouse. You know, your parents would arrange a marriage in another group, or you'd get kidnapped to another group, <laughs> um, and then you would spend the rest of your life in that group, but... There was no idea that you would take a five-year-old kid and send them to school with total strangers
2: yeah. and
1: expect them to get along with everybody and share their feelings. It's just not the way things have worked. It's, it was in the past. just like, you know, you stick with our group. You do what we do. You don't do what we don't do. So we're really asking a lot of kids with, with these sort of higher goals that we have.
0: That's a good point. I didn't even think about any of that.
1: Yeah. So, um, I I'll give you, you know, an interesting ex- uh, explanation. Like, yeah. so my family was Italian and the way I thought of life was that my parents' friends were all Italian and everyone had the same outlook and it seemed provincial and, you know, everyone likes to, Find fault with their parents' culture in some way. (laughs) But then I learned that my parents were pioneers in a way I couldn't have understood. So my parents, both of their families came from southern Italy, but one came from one province and one came from another province. And for, you know, thousands of years of Italian history, people did not marry someone from a different province. And in fact... um, in my grandparents' generation, people who immigrated from Italy, they moved to the block in Brooklyn where other people from that village moved. Wow. So they stayed, yeah, yeah. So they may have spent a few weeks on a boat, but <laughs> otherwise they spent their whole lives in this um, insular world of this is what you do and this is what you don't do. So they didn't have that that difficulty of like, oh, I have to fit in and I have to be myself. How can you do what everyone else does and be yourself at the same time? There's there's no no good solution
0: to that. No. No. And it's nice when we look at it from, take a step back and look at it from how nature handles it. We can take some of the pressure off of ourselves to be perfect or to have it be a certain way.
1: Yes, absolutely. And this is what got me into this when you say how it worked in nature if you read about how it works in monkeys, it's so fascinating. And um, when I really got into it and I would read, like, there's one person who spent their whole life doing field observation of one species. Another person did their whole life field observation of another species. And a lot of that today has gotten this veneer of, like, oh, animals just hang around in harmony and it's all warm and fuzzy, but it's not true at all. So if you get beyond that and, and look at maybe books written before this current trend of like animals are all warm and loving. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in each species, you find like first they um, they attack each other a lot within their groups, but they fear leaving their group because they, um, they get eaten by predators when they're isolated. But If there's no mating opportunity in their group, they do leave, and they have terrible stress when they leave, and a lot of them die, but if they finally manage to get accepted in a new group, then they manage to pass on their genes, Hmm. and most of us, most people would say, oh, well, I'm not just trying to pass on their genes, but that's what our brain has selected for, and that's what your brain rewards. In, in different ways. So even though you're not consciously trying to do that, that's the kind of things that makes your brain
0: feel good. Hmm. Can you touch on serotonin and how that plays into our happiness?
1: So, um, serotonin is a uh, very challenging and uncomfortable to think about. So studies in the seventies showed that, um, serotonin is a good feeling of being in the one-up position. Now, today, most people would say, oh, that's wrong. You shouldn't try to be in the one-up position. I don't care about being in the one-up position. But we can all see that everyone else is this way. It's just that we don't like to see it in ourselves (laughs) and in our own social group. So we can blame some other social group for being that way and, and deny it in ourselves. So it's so fascinating to see it in monkeys. So the idea is that um, reptiles, when they live alone, they don't have to compete for food. But once you're in a, they don't compete with group mates for food. But once mammals got together in a herd, then any time I see a piece of food, then everybody else sees it too. So like let's say we're a bunch of monkeys in a tree. If we all rush toward the same juicy mango, then we're going to knock into each other and somebody's going to get hurt. So the way it works in nature, and if people have watched nature videos, they know this, like the stronger individual sort of bears their teeth, the others back down, and the stronger ones get the mango or whatever the food is or whatever the mating opportunity, and the other one keeps looking for something they can get while avoiding conflict. And if you always back down and you never get anything, then you don't survive and your genes don't survive. So our brains evolved the way to feel good about, wait a minute, I'm going to stand up for this banana. This one's mine. And that's serotonin. And mm-hmm. what does it take to get that? It's a mental process that we're very uncomfortable about is comparing yourself to others. And that's why your brain is always comparing you to others. So this monkey says, He's smaller than me. I'm not going to let him have that banana. So none of us likes to think of ourselves like going around taking bananas from weaker individuals. (laughs) But a way of looking at it is if I work for a company and I have to decide I want a promotion, which jobs should I go for? And I don't want to go for a really bad job. But if I go for a really good job, I think, oh, I'm probably not going to get that. You know, this one's probably going to get it. So I look around for a job that I think I have a shot at. And I think, that job, I can get that. So I know that sounds like dopamine, but this is like, I'm better at that skill, so Hmm. I can do it. And, again, as much as we don't like to admit to, like, I want to be better, but it's so easy to see what a big driver that is in life and how devastated we feel when, you know, maybe I used to be 2% better than my peers, but now I'm 2% worse, and it feels like a life-threatening risk to the mammal brain, even if your life is perfectly fine, but you're 2% behind. Hmm. The simple example I use is, um, let's say you have a list of the top 10 billionaires, and you have somebody who's on the list, and now he he drops down to, he's like, number 11, the 11th richest person in the world, so he's no longer on the top 10 list. So he might feel devastated. So you may think, oh, yes, billionaires are such jerks, but you are probably that way about something else in your life,
0: you know? I might take this part out, but I, when I read that part in your book, I thought about my husband cause he's so proud of what I'm doing with the podcast. And he's like, like you said with your husband, he's my biggest mm-hmm. fan, my biggest supporter. And there's a part of me that's like, wait a minute, am I not like good enough the way I am not doing this? What's going on? And I read, <laughs> I read that I'm like, oh, maybe he's getting a serotonin increase. Maybe this is like, that's a spike in that for him because he's seeing it as a, a cool thing. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Yes, Same yes, and
1: here's a really uncomfortable part about relationships. Nobody likes to admit that they want to be loved by someone in a higher status position, mm. and that feels great. But in the animal world, it's so easy to see. At the simplest, simplest example, everyone's heard about the thing about the peacock's tail, that female peacocks look for the guy with the biggest tail, uh, the brightest tail, and that big tail actually makes it harder for a male peacock to survive. So what's the deal? Why would that evolve? Well, because females prefer it. So why would females prefer it if it were not effective? Well, it was discovered that in order to make those big, bright, colorful feathers, it takes a... Um, a, a Metabolism with high resistance to parasites. So, if I mate with the guy with the big tail, my children will have high resistance to parasites. Hmm. Now, the female peacock is not intellectualizing about high resistance to parasites. So, when you are looking for attraction, you're not consciously thinking about what's going to advantage your offspring, but Factors that work trigger attraction, and there you are. And the one that works is something that makes that partner like cut above.
0: Hmm. Hmm. That's fascinating. There mm. is,
1: and oh, excuse me. Oh, oh and just yeah. the uh, the opposite is true. Anything that puts your partner in that cut below <laughs> then man, of course, is very unattractive. <laughs>
0: yeah that's funny and you know what maybe on some levels going back to you know loving people that have addictions maybe that's why we're so resistant to them having the addiction in the first place because what well because we're seeing it as an unattractive thing seeing it as like not not a high status or a higher status I don't know well no but but addiction is suffering.
1: We don't want to see other people suffer either.
0: No, that's definitely true. I
1: mean, we we know that there can't be a good outcome to that. See, the whole idea, I I don't know, what I hear in you, and a lot of people is like, somehow it's our fault for for judging addiction as a bad Mm. thing. But to me that's sort of addict speak. Like, it's always like there's nothing wrong with addiction. It's only society is making it bad. But there, there is something wrong with it. it. It leads to self-destruction. Yeah. So we don't want to see other people hurt themselves, no matter what it is, and that's um, a mirror neuron thing. Like when you... Our, our mirror neurons respond when we see others um, get rewards or avoid pain. So, and that's a, another way we can help people is when we see people getting rewards in a healthier way and we feel good for them and that helps them uh... learn to feel good for themselves um... again it's like such a strong desire like if if i want someone else to be well more than they want it for themselves we all we all know this trap Mm.
2: um...
1: it's, it's almost easier to think of it in another context that's not um, that's not about addiction. So the the example that comes to mind is if I have a little child um like most kids learn to read, right? Yeah. But if I have a child and I'm like oh I want you to read. I want you to read, honey, please learn to read, please learn to read. It, um, and then they're like, oh, I wonder if I'm going to be able to read. I wonder if I... it's if a it, the minute a person says I wonder if I'm going to be able to read. They can't read, hmm. you know. So it's like a certain um, tackling a task has to come from within. And if someone is like, "I want to feel good for you rather than for myself," the the self care the self care piece needs to develop and and it's really hard to do that and um historically what we often see is um people develop that in a in a setting i hate to say this but in a setting where they don't have um the opportunity to to revert to their first impulse mm. you know like um If I act in a self-destructive way, then that's going to get your support. And so that's always going to, if I've learned that behavior, then I'm constantly going to act in a self-destructive way because I think I need to do that in order to get social support. And if you take that person and you put them in a totally new environment where they can't do that, then they have the possibility to learn another way to, to to feel social support and to feel trust in their coping skills. But as long as the old way is an option, it's such a big pathway in their brain that they might not
0: try it. That's fascinating. So, really, people that are in my shoes, we need to focus on ourselves and really learn what we can to take care of ourselves and be there for the addict. But at the same time, you know, maybe look at where we're rewarding self-destructive behavior and maybe change that up yeah. and find other behaviors that we can reward and give our love and our attention yeah. and those good feelings to that. Yeah. You know, that. when you
1: say be there for the person, again, you have to be there for the person in ways that you decide are healthy. You can't let them mm-hmm. be the judge. So what they will do is make you feel guilty if you're not there for them in a way that's enabling the bad habit. And it's so hard. And I remember when I first learned this and, um, you know, in parenting, you may learn this expression, catch the child being good, you know, so you catch them being good and then you reward them for that. Um, And it's like, yeah, but what if they don't do the good stuff for you to reward? So the answer to that is is often called micro-recognition, which is... um, uh, you know, rewarding a small step. But with, um, a person who's an, an adult may not take well to being treated this way. So it works better if it feels authentic.
2: Mm. And
1: I'll give you an example. Let's say I'm an addict and I call you to guilt you into doing something that's going to enable my bad habit and you, um, you so want to be nice to me, and so you have this conversation, and then after we have a conversation, then, you, then I ask you for money, and you say no, and then I get angry at you, and then it ends on a bad note again. So <laughs> um, I, I don't know if I've overgeneralized, but the bottom line is that um, how can... A person creates stepping stones to show an alternative way of interacting. So, um, when a person does a thing that we want, um, that we reward them in a natural way. So, for example, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, you're I'm the addict that calls you, and. If I do something that's different from the usual, like at least I ask you about your day and I'm interested in your day, or um I have a conversation with you without asking you for money, and then you give me an authentic like gee it's so it's such a pleasure to talk to you, you know I really enjoy you know and 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 it's some genuine enjoyment of of like what's the what's the positive. And if there is no positive, um, you know, if, it, if it's been, somehow that has to be made real because otherwise maybe the person realizes like that they're guilting you is the only cord of the relationship. And if they don't keep guilting you, there will be no
0: relationship. Mm. I was watching um, Gloria Steinem talking to Oprah the other day and She was talking about, I think it was a culture in Africa where when somebody did something that went against the rules, that person would be exiled from the community for a certain amount of time. But then when they brought them back in, there was a ceremony where they all came in and they spent, I don't remember how much time it was, but everyone took turns telling that person like all the good things that they had done in their life. And Mm -hmm. I thought that was kind of beautiful and not quite the same, but similar in that. You know, yeah. Very authentically, you got to let someone know the good things that they're, the way that they've impacted. Yeah. But you know,
1: but it may be hard to do authentically because maybe the person hasn't done good things because they've gotten into this um, using self-victimhood as a tool. You know, at a a very early age, Um, in which case. Uh, again, often uh, alternative scenarios work. Uh, I'll give you an example of alternative scenarios uh, just off top of my head. So um, one person um, goes to China to teach English, and when they're there, they have to sink or swim on their own um, on their own skills. and it's completely different from all the usual habits that they're involved in, and then they they learn to have one little positive interaction, another little positive interaction, and they're building a new positive circuit from little pieces and little repetitions that's, like, just totally unrelated to all their old ways of doing things because none of their old triggers are there. Now, I know not everyone can go off and live in a village in China and be... Um, <laughs> Uh, making healthy choices, but if a person is is at that point. You know, it's just an example of learning new ways of relating in a, in a restricted setting that's sort of devoid of one's old habits. Mm -hmm. Now, here's a different, uh, much simpler example. Um, Someone I know who's um, using my books, she does a therapy, uh, equine therapy has gotten a lot of attention, but what this particular person is doing, um, they are taking, um, this is in England, and there's a program with juvenile offenders um, having um, opportunities um, out of prison to go to this horse farm every day for a couple of hours and they're taught how to groom a horse and it's not um, intentionally it's not presented to the to the teenager as a, a therapeutic exercise it's just like you're going to approach the horse uh, you're going to learn to groom a horse it's like a cool thing but if you approach a horse with a bad attitude, the <laughs> horse reacts badly. Yes. So the horse is like a really good mon- like mirror to help you get that biofeedback in a way that you can accept. Because if you act like a jerk with people you know, you've learned to get away with it, and then when other people judge you, you blame them for judging you. But when it's a horse... It's like, geez, if I'm aggressive with the horse, the horse doesn't like it. How can I become aware that I'm being aggressive? You
0: know, that's fascinating. That's pretty cool. And she's using your work, your books, to implement that. Yeah, yeah.
1: Again, she's not using my work with the um, the teens. Um, She's using my work to train her staff to help them understand the teens so they understand why this works.
0: I love but it. But when they
1: do it with the kids, it's all experiential.
0: I love it. I think this should be required reading for every teacher out there and every parent. Um.
1: Um, excuse me. Um, I, I, this is really urgent. Um, oh, yes. It has to be explained. Um, the book that we've talked about so far is not going to exist in um, two weeks. Oh, I, I mean, two months. Um, So it's going to be replaced by a new book, so we need to just focus um, on the new title, So maybe we should do that from the beginning and call the book Habits of a
0: Happy Brain. Habits of a Happy Brain, okay.
1: Yes, and I'll send you the link. Habits of a Happy Brain, retrain your brain to boost your serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, and endorphin levels. And the publisher chose the title, and I had no...
0: Say. Well, I'm glad that you pointed that out because I was just going to ask you, um, what book would you recommend that we start out with? Obviously, we should all start out with going and signing up for the Happy Chemical Jumpstart emails because those are really, really valuable. But you think the Habits of a Challenge or Habits of a Happy Brain, that's the book that we should start out with?
1: Um, yes, Habits of a Happy Brain has um, lots of simple step-by-step exercises and outlines to make it um, really clear. Uh, whereas the um, the emails are um, just reading without um, a lot of step-by-step. Um, however, I hear from a lot of people who don't like to read, so <laughs> I'll just mention that um, as a starter. I did create some videos, and um, the core video training is called Your Ups and Downs Are Natural and Also Learned.
2: Mm. Your
1: Ups and Downs Are Natural and Also Learned. And that has um, three videos, 12 minutes each, and each one has a one-page summary and one page of exercises. So that's like a really simple first step. And the way to find the video is if you go to my website, intermammalinstitute dot org, and then in the, navig- oh, in the navigation, you'll see uh, it says free stuff, and the first thing under free stuff it says YouTube training.
0: Oh, that's free. Yes. Wow. It's free. That's fantastic. Okay, okay. so and I will include all of that in the show notes for um, anyone Great. that's on the road too. Loretta, this has been fascinating, and I really appreciate your time. Is there any, are there any final thoughts that you'd like to leave us with?
1: Um, yeah, I was going to say, um, for a person who really wants to even read less than six pages, <laughs> um, I've created these infographics. So if you go to intermammalinstitute.org slash infographics, there's a really, really simple introductory format to all of this. But then again, I, um, the book is really step-by-step, and it's not a lot of science jargon. It's very much um, little stories about animals and people that helps everyone see how they can create positive expectations in their brain.
0: All right. So I hope that you enjoyed the podcast. I really appreciate you spending the time with us today. I know this one ran a little bit long, but I hope that you were able to um, either break it up or listen to it and get a lot out of it. There was so much value. I didn't want to cut any of it out. So come back to the show notes, addictionsupportpodcast.com forward slash episode five, and I'll have all the links there. You can pick up the book and find out more about um, Loretta, there. So I really appreciate it. And go to the website, addictionsupportpodcast.com and find out more about the contest I'm running. I'm going to be giving away um, probably at least three of Loretta's books. So go to the website and you can find out how you can win one of her books. Thank you very much. I will talk to you guys next time. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Support Podcast. Addiction support for family and friends from people who've been there, www.addictionsupportpodcast.com.